0: Yes, indeed, it is Thursday. And as usual, it is time to look at this week's uh, re- latest cinema releases in the company of our reviewers this evening, Ruth Barton and Paul Whittington. Lies We Tell gives us an Irish, an offhand Irish teenager sparring with her scheming uncle in a reworking of Sheridan LaFano's novel. Some Otherhood is a comedy described as a parody of the UK urban genre. As well as directing and starring, Adam Deacon also co writes and co produces. And he stacked the cast with all kinds of unexpected cameos. The burial is based on a true story of an unconventional personal injury lawyer who helps a financially troubled funeral homeowner sue a large funeral home company over a contractual dispute. But we'll start this evening with The Miracle Club, directed by Thaddeus O'Sullivan, who we spoke to earlier this week. The film stars Laura Linney, Cathy Bates, Maggie Smith, and Stephen Ray, and follows a group of working class women from Dublin on a pilgrimage to Lourdes. I think I'm told when you say pilgrimage and you're talking about this period in time, you should mispronounce the Lourdes absolutely in, yeah. in the absolute yeah, right way. Absolutely. So I'm following that advice. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ruth, um, that cast <laughs> list for starters,
1: stunning cast. What yeah. a cast! Amazing cast, and and and. Um, they're they're actually fabulous to look at. I mean, one of the things that, that 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 sort of drew drew my eye in this film the whole time was Maggie Smith, because her face is so lined and. And, and the clarity of the image means you see every wrinkle, every line on her face and Taddeus O'Sullivan, the director, was a cinematographer before he became a director mm. and I'm sure he was behind some of these camera movements that bring it right up into her face so that wh- what I liked about it was they're not disguising her age or trying to you she know... She seems
2: t- very comfortable. Yeah, and she thing.
1: seems and she's she she's she's still you know, fantastic and um, I mean, she started. I don't know how many hundred years ago in The Loneliness of Judith Hearn um, and so she's been in Dublin she's done it she's done it before and she I thought of all of them her accent was the best too I I was because I was slightly distracted by say Kathy Bates who who was slipping the accent was slipping and I found that distracting
0: yeah so let's get the the basic setup here we're in the 1967 isn't it yeah we're in 1967 Paul yes There uh, there are events from 40 years previous that have to be put to bed. Yeah. Uh, So we have the death of one of the older women and the arrival back home of that older woman's daughter, the older woman's daughter being the Laura Linney character. Yeah,
2: exactly. And um, uh, it's Laura Linney's um, uh, mother who's died and she was best friends with... um, The Maggie Smith character. With Maggie Smith's character, Lily, and also with um, Cathy Bates' character, Eileen uh, Dunn. And... um, when she comes back, the, you know, the, the, she's not given a great reception. There's mm. there's all sorts of scowls and Kathy Bates seems to have a particular problem with her and, and Maggie Smith also. And it's like the nerve of her coming back here. We don't know why. Um, Maggie Smith's character, Lily, is mourning. Her son was lost at sea mm. like many years, 40 years before, 30 years before. And... Uh, the, the, there's a problem with that. So Laura Linney walks back into that. I think wisely, w- w- we are asked to believe that she went to America and from inner city Dublin. And now it doesn't sound like she's from inner city Dublin yeah. at all. But that's fine because it sort of works and she's good. And so the the the, the rather saintly, very post Vatican two priest played by Mark Halloran has a raffle. The, the 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 winning tickets go to Lourdes, mm. and and eventually the group of them go there fighting all the way.
0: Yeah. So we have the that that older group we have. Chrissy, the Laura Lenny character goes the Kathy Bates, who's Chrissy's cousin. They go yes, they go yeah, together, mm-hmm. even though they haven't spoken for years and years. And the two and then the older Maggie Smith is there But in the midst of all of that as well, is a younger character very much Representing the the new generation who will be in two of the films we're going to talk about this evening. Yeah, Agnes and this O'Casey. is the Agnes
1: Casey show. Because, yeah, tonight um, it certainly is very good. Uh, in both she is films so well, good, yeah. uh, and she is of course as I think probably the woman's wife know, Sean Casey's granddaughter. Mm. She's fant- she's fantastically talented. In this film, she plays a woman called Dolly, and she is the, she is the younger generation. Yeah, she has a son called Daniel who doesn't speak, and she's hoping for a miracle, which is that he will speak, um, and so she's going. Uh, she's going for this and um, there's there's a there's a kind of attention to then in, in the household because her husband doesn't want her to leave um because uh, I, in part because he doesn't want to hang around with these older women, I think. He thinks mm. they'll be a bad infant. And partly
2: because he's useless and can't And he's useless,
1: stuff. and all the men yeah. are useless, actually, in fairness, oh, yeah. Paul, I think. Then
2: and
1: now, Which <laughs> you Oh, God, no, no, I think change, uh, there's been Don't a big start. change. <laughs> because um, I think, uh, you know, the fact that we have modern nappies now probably helps, yeah, the, it helps it the modern man, it too. And
0: newsflash, there are men who cook.
1: Um, not in this yeah no. no
0: not in that film not in this film in, and and the men I just want to say the in the studio
2: Sean. yes yeah. in,
1: in the men I just want to say in this are uh, caricatured <laughs> normally we're saying yeah. that the women are caricatured here and yeah, uh, you know Stephen Ray is in this. He's he mugs terribly to camera, and he's he's acting up this kind of you know, inner city Dublin bloke from the nineteen sixties. Well,
0: it, it brings up one of the one of the subjects that I spoke with Thaddeus O'Sullivan about, which is the balance between the comedy and the quite yeah. serious side, because they, it's all harking back to a period in nineteen twenties and and the position of women and an unwanted pregnancy. Than not giving anything away by saying that. We'll come back to that aspect of it in a minute, but let's talk about the trip, to, the trip to Lourdes, because that's yeah. kind of where the the fun really kicks in. In some ways, when they get there, and then it turns serious, Paul.
2: Well, well it, it does, and it, um, in there, the, the, the the unresolved tensions between Laura Linney's character and and the the, the two older women. Uh, although I was slightly confused by the fact that Kathy Bates seems to be supposed to be Laura of Linney's course. friend. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, a, I, I find the age Yeah, I the age
1: very d- difficult yeah. to understand because yeah. also Kathy Bates' family seems to be too young for her. Yeah, so the, I
0: think the it, argument was that she has five or six children and Laura Linney yeah. is not in that situation, so therefore she's not as worn out as the but, Kathy Bates character. Not at all. Yeah. No, but no, But, yeah. but in, in any
2: case, off they go and they're bickering all the way and we gradually find out bits and pieces and all of that is teased out rather nicely really and there are some very good because the actor there are some very good scenes particularly between uh, uh, Laura Linney and Maggie Smith um, and yeah. this is not a film that could afford to go to Lord, but they do it very well. Yeah. Well, listen. Let's listen to uh, that clip between
0: um, between Laura Linney and uh, and Kathy Smith, uh, where it's Chrissy confronting uh, uh, Maggie Smith. Chrissy is confronted So Chrissy was going out with Lily's son. That's the yes. crux of the matter here. And here is the scene between the two of them.
1: She'll ruin your life. What? Isn't that what you said to Declan?
3: She'll ruin your life?
0: Not now, Chrissy.
2: I was 17. I was pregnant. We were so happy. We were
1: so, how was I going to ruin his life? I thought you were trying to trap him. He was my son, my only son. I wanted him to have a better life
4: than I had. We would have. But how did you manage it? How did you convince her to shut me out?
0: Your mother did her best. But with your father dead, there was no one to reel you in. There was no talking to you. You were wild.
3: Your mother forgave me. God
4: punished me, didn't he? Taking him away like that. He punished all of us.
0: There you go, Lily Smith. I'm insisting on calling her Lily Smith. Maggie Smith uh, as Lily. That's what's mixing me up. Lily Fox is the title of the character and Chrissy, uh, her potential daughter-in-law, but that didn't happen. Played there by Laura Linney in the film The Miracle Club. That's that's where the film is at its dramatic best. Uh, What is the balance between the dramatic scenes like that, Ruth, and the comedy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I did like those interactions. And, and I think when Taddy O'Sullivan was on, uh, on radio with you, he was saying it's like a road movie. And it is like mm. a road movie because when you throw a group of people like that together in a different um, s- situation, then they start to talk and secrets come out. And I thought that was very well played dramatically. What I did find... I mean, I found the film to be dated, and I know that it has a twenty-year yeah. it has a, a history that the, that the mm-hmm. screenplay was written twenty years ago. I mean, even twenty years ago. Let's say if we remind ourselves, two thousand and two is the Magdalene Sisters. This this film is very soft, and it's got that kind mm-hmm. of soft comedy edge around yeah. it that, for me, puts it even right back into the nineties in terms of that slightly Irishy kind yeah. of slightly whimsical. And I think the uh, star casting
0: kind of. Adds, yes, adds to that in does, some ways, yeah. and we have to take Agnes O'Casey out of that for sure because she's. And we'll talk more about her in the in, yes. in the second film. But briefly, the look of the film, that how he recreates the nineteens the late nineteen sixties and that wonderful location out in Booterstown with yeah, sunrises. It, I, I
2: actually think that, that 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 was reasonably well done, and they use I it it looked like out of the South Wall. Mm. Uh, uh, to me, Shelley yeah. Banks all that for the for, for for some of the scenes where Maggie Smith is is remembering her son. I thought that all that was reasonably well done and what looks like a tight budget. The problem, as Ruth says, is that uh, it, it does feel a little dated in, in, in its construction and it it has that kind of yeah. incidental music that tells you how to feel, which is kind of, All doesn't right. really work, but there are good performances. All right.
0: Stars overall from you, Paul? Uh, three. Three, and Ruth?
1: Um, I'm three as well. Three,
0: so pretty solid for both of you in those terms. Uh, uh, three uh, stars for... The Miracle Club. Let's move on then to Lies We Tell as we've said on a couple of occasions. second film starring Agnes yeah. O'Casey. Um, this time she's playing an orphaned maud who must deal with her uncle Silas and his family who move into her home Directed by Lisa Mulcahy who we spoke to earlier in the week as well. The Sheridan LaFano source here the, the, the novel Uncle Silas very well known novel mm. but a much Broader, vaster story yeah. than you're gonna fit into to an hour and a half of a yes. movie. What has Lisa Mulcahy and under screenwriters, done to well? I
2: condense mean, condense this down. we were saying before we came in in fairness to them. I think they they had a very small budget, yeah. half a million or something like that. So, so I I think they've done very well considering that. And perhaps necessarily they have truncated the book. Uh, there was a whole first third in which you get to know Maud's father, which tells you a lot about her. And he's kind of out of this. He's already dead. She she's inherited this considerable estate uh, but a strange codicil in the will um, uh, tells that un, 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 until she reaches her majority she's going to have to deal with mm. her uncle Silas played by Darren Wilmot who turns out to be not very pleasant. At
0: yeah, David, David Wilmot playing, uh, playing the part of Uncle Silas in this it really is down, a lot of it is, because I think, and Lisa Mulcahy said this to me, practically every scene is, has Agnes O'Casey in it. She carries this movie.
1: Mm. She really does, and she's she's she she can produce a really nuanced performance. It's actually, she's given a better part in this than in The Miracle Club, um, and, and it's because there, there are more nuances around her, and in part it's also because of the visuals, um, and I know you were talking about this mm. when you were discussing the film, which is that, so many of the scenes are lit by candlelight. Candlelight, yeah. So that kind of sense of a character coming into the light and, and, and receding into the darkness is also a kind of metaphorical way of showing um, of her. But even when the camera's on her face, you can you can see the sort of thoughts going through her mind. And what's interesting about it is, and what actually make, makes the film for me, is that towards the end we realise, yes, she's a victim, but she's also not a goody-goody. And, and in fact, it may be that she and her wicked Uncle Silas have a lot uh, in common. Yeah, they're yeah. closer than, yeah. than. Well, there's she a yes. question
0: mark over Uncle Silas and whether he was responsible for a murder. and yes, he's was, what he,
1: has he, gone a, on in the A past. locked
2: room murder, yeah. which uh, somebody to whom he owed a great deal of money has found with his throat slit. Yeah. And uh, he was cleared but with the door closed. Convinced. With the door closed. Yeah, yeah classic Victorian fashion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So but those those scenes are probably the. There's this series of awful dinners by candlelight in mm. which. He, Silas tries to impose his will on Maud by every means. He wants her to marry the, his, his dreadful son played by Chris Wally who's kind of like a, a yellow pack Heathcliff yeah. and uh, she doesn't want to.
0: Okay, Chris Wally though to be fair the young offenders, Chris Wally you know I had to be told good. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of I'd, course it's that Chris Wally. I'd like Wally. him
2: to have had yeah. more to do yeah. actually. Let's he's listen good, yeah.
0: to a scene between uh, Chris Wally and uh, uh, and Agnes O'Casey here uh, which really gets to the heart of another dilemma that's come up that the, 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 uh, Uncle Sells is trying to set up his son to marry her and therefore all the money <laughs> stays in the family that's the basic plan but it's Chris Wally and Agnes O'Casey here well, I imagine you have a shrewd suspicion
4: of the object of this tete-a-tete
2: I haven't the slightest conception kindly move aside
4: you know that it is totally impossible for a fellow such as myself and a, a charming girl such as yourself to meet continually as we do without a liking Growing on one side or another.
2: I suppose I needn't pretend to be violently in love.
1: Please don't.
4: Sensible go. Governor will see to it. We needn't go into the Please
1: particular- Please don't continue. Beg pardon? Am I to suppose you formed an attachment for me?
4: Mm-hmm.
1: A sincere attachment. You do me too much honor, sir. Dash (laughs) it!
4: If you require some love making, then I'm your man. Have
2: the goodness to let me pass.
0: There we go, Agnes O'Casey and Chris Wally in a scene from Lies We Tell. And you get a sense in that scene, Ruth, of the underlying violence, which is portrayed later on in a very violent scene between... uh, There is a a
1: very violent sexual assault, which is extremely well done. And you really, it's visceral. Mm. You really feel that.
0: There's no running away from... uh, Briefly, Ard Gillen the as the location... I mean it's perfect. It sets the period. And it takes yeah. it, it takes the 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 novel away from Derbyshire where Lefano set it uh, and into an, an Irish setting, which I think was Elizabeth Bone, was it, who said uh, that's was it should did be
2: of and little was and it was an Irish novel definitely mm. I mean what what is good what is not what is not so that is that of there, there's an ambivalence to Silas in the novel, which novel which is think is largely absent mm. here. I mean. Um, Dermot Wilmot has a moustache and manfully resists the urge to to twirl it, but he's a Victorian villain. But what is interesting is that th- those interactions between, it's just the whole film's a battle will between the two of them mm. and she refuses to become a victim.
0: Yeah, and uh, I don't know what how she is in the book, but she certainly has a wonderful ambivalence in this. You're kind of going, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm rooting yeah. for her. Oh, should I be? <laughs> you know, yeah, because yeah. no, because you yeah. have this
1: real kind of kick-ass yeah. ending then. I won't give okay. it away. But, yeah, absolutely.
0: But she, Stars from you on this one, Ruth.
1: I gave it three. I mean, it seems like why am I giving three to the to the two of them? They're two really different films, but they've both got certain sort of strengths and yeah. weaknesses. It, for me, was a three, but I think there's a huge amount of promise, and I like the fact that it is this um, uh, yeah. scheme to give women more roles, both and also uh, making the film as yeah, well. Yeah, that's the Ava
0: of that screenwriter. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't it? And what are you saying? Yeah, same
2: for me. Three because I think it did it did very well uh, on, on on very limited uh, resources.
0: All right, let's move on then to some other land, which is kind of a, a, obviously S U M motherland, is how it some is. Other,
1: sorry, Sean, to correct you, it's some other hood because it's, hood. Yeah, it's in the hood. Oh, beg your pardon,
0: some other hood. It's in the hood. Certainly, that's what's written here. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. that's a, This yeah, you
1: know. is um, the, the, you know one of the really <laughs> hilarious jokes that I didn't get was the title. Yeah, well, clearly <laughs> okay, I was so. with you on that
0: one, but that was a total misread on my part. <laughs> Nothing else. Um, Rico and Kane, who are they, Ruth?
1: These are two, I mean, so they're two misfit London criminals um, and they have, the film opens with them in their um, uh, cheap, lodgings. Uh, They sleep in bunk beds one on top of the other, you know, cue quite a lot of jokes about, Mm. um, you know, uh, men and couples. Their landlord is coming after them for money which they don't have so they have to go and commit uh, a series of crimes in order to get the money but they're so inept that each time they try to commit the the crime something goes wrong and in the larger crime which is in the bank um, one of the the, uh, onlookers Mm. has a heart attack. He's a linchpin criminal and um, uh, Rico believes he's responsible for his death and that he's killed him. This puts him in with another gang because they're they're, um, uh, they're the other gang in the area. So he's in with them until, we dis- until he discovers that he hasn't killed them, at which point he's out with them okay. and in with the other gang. But so, this all leads to the fact that he may get the girl.
0: Yeah, so I was going to say I'm guessing that the plot is not the real thing. You know, we're deal. not watching it for no, the plot. We're not, what are we watching it for?
1: Well, I went I went to a public screening where there was a load of kids who, who, who were enjoying this a lot more than I was. Um, so w- what it is, it's a series of, of, of sight gags and, and setups. And it, it is a riff on, I mean, um, Adam Deacon, who plays Rico, uh, starred in a couple of the serious London mobster films. And then he turned around and started making his own spoofs of London mobster films. So he made, he played in kid adulthood and adulthood. Mm. And then um, he made another hood, and then some other hood, which is really some
2: other hood. Yeah, now I follow. No, well, yeah, okay, yeah, everybody's yeah, with that... me on this one okay. now. So that's
1: that's that's really funny. Um, but but in the time between when he made um, another hood, which is 2011, and now he got into serious problems because he started harassing the director of the serious films, who took him to court, and then he got into public uh, trouble um, mm. for an assault um, with uh, a machete. Yeah. Um, and it turned out that he was bipolar, and he was sectioned. And, and I'm I'm saying this not just for sort of tittle tattle, but because his character in the film is bipolar, yeah. and there's a lot of discussion about mm. mental health. So again,
0: it. It, it it seems to have this idea of there's a very serious side to that aspect of the story, but it's a spoof on the gangster. Yeah, it's a
1: spoof, and it's a relentless set you know set, mm. set of jokes. And if you've seen the poster, you'll know that there's a cameo by Ed Sheeran. And the really hilarious thing about Ed Sheeran is he takes a dump. So you know we're into kind of. British toilet humour at the same time Okay. and then there's Jeremy Corbyn who, who looks absolutely baffled he doesn't know what who he's doing who doesn't take it on <laughs> no he does no, not okay, happily no. for all, all the rest of us oh, alright
0: yeah. okay um, that doesn't sound uh, it, just, it
1: wasn't my cup but I mean the audience I was with who, who were much it. more okay. the, you well, know, they were, they, they were getting that. a lot of the jokes and they recognised yeah. a lot of the walk on stars um, I gave it three and a half out of sort of bafflement because I felt just because I didn't like it the rest of the world might <laughs> Get
0: three and a half out of Bafflement. A speculative three. Yeah, bafflement. yeah. It was a,
1: it was a yeah. sitting on the fence three and a <laughs> half. To be really honest. Finally,
0: then, and you've seen this one, Paul. Yeah. Inspired by true events. This is the Burial. A lawyer helps yes. a funeral homeowner save his family business from a huge corporation, exposing a complex web of race, power, and injustices. How the billing reads on this one. And mm. um, what's the setup? Two great actors here again. Uh, involved, two Tommy, great
2: actors. Yeah, um, it, it's very much like the kind of, the sort of um, very broad legal kind of pot boilers used to get in the nineties. Yeah, uh, often written by John Grisham, and uh, but but it's based on a true story, and it, it has a lot more wit than than those films did, with all due respect to them. Mm-hmm. And it also has um, uh, Jamie Foxx who you will forget. Jamie Fox
0: and Tommy Lee Jones are the two great actors yeah, we're talking about.
2: But Jamie Foxx one forgets how good he is, how funny he can be. Um, he he is uh, Willie E Gary, who's this very fast talking Florida lawyer who wears gold Rolex watches and his own plane, and he yeah. refers to himself constantly in the third person. Uh, so he, he's he he's this quite. Um, you know histrionic guy in some ways but he has substance as we find yeah, it. Yeah
0: so uh, which one are we in here we seem to have the, this mix of, of and putting lies we tell to the one side this mix of comedy and serious Yeah very much so Is this what we have here as well? We do We're And Tommy, uh,
2: uh, 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 to, to Tommy Lee Jones is is this uh, Mississippi funeral director and he has decided to sell part of his business because he has financial trouble and this c- Canadian conglomerate gets in and they are you know, mm-hmm. kind of the evil empire. And basically, he hires Willie to go after them. And it basically turns into a, 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 a sort of a legal drama, quite solid in some ways. But it is very funny in parts and also quite moving in parts. Tommy Lee Jones underplays it nicely. And Jamie Foxx is just tremendous right, that, well that yeah. sounds as if it's yeah. an interesting it's watch is it? yeah, it's quite fun and it's
0: get the big corporal and pull them down is it
2: exactly Yeah. so yeah. we're
0: all going to cheer at that moment
2: we are definitely going to cheer yeah. All right. Yeah. stars from you then uh, on four, uh, the burial four stars for this one I really like four liked. stars yeah, so that sounds, great great like, yeah.
0: sounds like in an old
2: fashioned f- sort of way yeah. it's great fun
0: an old fashioned four stars yes Paul, thank yes. you for
2: that that's Paul Whittington
0: on the burial and myself Paul and Ruth Barton also spoke to us about the Miracle Club and Lies We Tell and Some of Our which are on general release. The burial is available on Prime Video. The Sultan Stevenson Trio is taking the UK jazz scene by storm at the moment. Trio is led by young composer and jazz pianist, Sultan Stevenson, who has emerged as a musical force to be reckoned with following the release of his debut album, Faithful One, earlier this year. The Trio, along with the Mercury Prize winner, Dennis Baptiste, a saxophonist, will, is set to tour Ireland with Music Network from the 24th of October, visiting venues in Dublin, Cork, and Newbridge. And I'm delighted to be joined on the line now by Sultan uh, Stevenson. Sultan, you, you're 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 not long out of college. Uh, the debut album, Faithful One, was a huge hit. Y- you have hit the ground running. How exciting a period has it been? This this beginning of your professional career.
3: Um, well, hi, uh, and thanks for having me on on radio. Um, firstly, I mean, yeah, it's been amazing. It's been really from I mean we, we launched the album it was launched on the Wellwing recordings in I think the official date was March twenty fourth and ever, even before then it's, you know I've been very grateful for the reception has picked up all over the world. People have been, you know, saying that they like the music, they like the record. Mm. Um then we had a fantastic launch of course at the Jazz Cafe in London, um which was a which was a sellout show which was really um I guess a real kind of Um, celebration of young talent in London and you know loads of young people came out to Mm. the event loads of creative creative minded people came Um, and you know ever since then then we we toured around the UK um, you know, it's it's just been it's been a yeah. good, great experience, and it's been fantastic.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and as I said, um, you you study jazz at college in the, the Guildhall School of Music. And um, your your fellow musicians in the trio, Jacob Grin on bass, and Joel Waters on drums, are they college mates? Are they mates from before college? Or how how did the trio come into being?
3: That's a great question. Well. Um... They all, both of them, attended the Trinity Trinity Laban School, that's in Greenwich, London, mm. um, another conservatory. And I met the bass player Jacob Jacob Grinn Firstly, I think we met when we were 14, 15 because I went to the Harring. I'm I'm a, I'm a Haringey lad. I went to the Harringay Young Musicians uh, Jazz Big Band, and it's you know it's like a regional uh, music service who who ends served the, the the borough, and we met there and yeah it was, it, no. mm. we kept playing music kept in touch and then eventually i think it was in my second year of Guildhall, hall um i got introduced to joel joel for jacob and we started playing and i started writing kind of more tunes because back then this is around 2021 i started yeah. writing a lot of music and I you know, needed people to play it and I thought, you know, this was an amazing outfit. This was an amazing kind of group to try out my music. Yeah, And, you know, that gave us material and we were able to kind of slowly build like a nice kind of ensemble hall just by, you know, playing my music, and hanging out and, you know, listening to records together. Mm. And, you know, it, it's, it's always been very important to me to actually, um, the musicians in, in, in the band to, to kind of be able to chill with each other and to be able to be with each other outside of the context of the actual yeah. ensemble. That's, that's very well, important. it's interesting.
0: Interesting that you were playing from you know from your mid-teens um, and and that composition then started to, to creep in a little bit later on. Let's have a listen to um, one of the tracks from the album. This is a, a track called Summer Was Our Holy Place." Tell me a little bit about this as we as we head into to listen to it, if you would, Sultan.
3: Um, yeah, so summer this is actually. This is it's, it's, it's great that you're playing this this is actually probably my favourite maybe my favourite track from the record um, and it features Dennis Baptiste on saxophone who's obviously going to be on the tour as well as Josh Short and this piece, this was this was composed on the back of a poem that I read um, and the title was Summer Was Our Holy Place so it's the it's kind of, I guess it's the feeling of summer can almost be a location or like a mindset and you know, this is what the piece is about Summer Was Our Holy Place mm
0: There of Summer was Our Holy Place from Sultan Stevenson's trio and their album Faithful One. And uh, Sultan joining me. Uh, on the programme this evening ahead of the Coming to Ireland as part of a Music Network tour and the bat-eared and even the those who are not bat-eared among us will have heard that it wasn't just a trio there <laughs> that we. it wasn't just you Sultan on piano Jacob Green on bass and Joel Waters on drums there were a couple of wind instruments in there as well so tell us about the additions to the trio that you used on the record and what that wind brings and those horns bring to the sound
3: Yeah, so um, on the record it's, uh, it's joined by uh, Dennis Baptiste on saxophone my good friend Josh Short on trumpet, who also plays flugel. I, I believe he actually plays flugel on that mm. on that track for any kind of key listeners uh, out there. And for me, I've always been, um, I've always loved arranging, and I've always loved writing for horns. Especially when I was maybe, maybe a bit younger, I was kind of very into writing for big bands and writing for multiple horns. So, and also it, the second kind of part of that is I love comping. I love to accompany musicians. I just find that when playing in trio, being the band leader of a piano trio, playing piano, Mm. you don't you don't really have anyone to accompany. So you know you're always the person taking the solos. Yeah, you're always the person playing the melodies. What having the horns allows is it actually allows me to kind of join in in that whole kind of musical communication and dialogue going on and also. Join forces with the drums and bass, and be a rhythm section for the frontline instrument.
0: Yeah, and it is interesting that it is it is the flugelhorn. I'm, I'm pretty certain that it is a flugelhorn there, as you say, because that has that slightly mellower sound than the trumpet can have. All, exactly. all the trumpet players in the world hating us both now for that particular comment. <laughs> but it has that mellower sound uh-huh. and fits quite nicely with the with the saxophone playing there as well. But I, I wonder what is the I mean when when Sultan Stevenson is playing the compositions of Sultan Stevenson. and what is the balance between the playing of a jazz piece and the composition of a jazz piece? Because in the composition, obviously, you're laying out specifically what you want, but in the playing, you're looking for the freedom to allow those solos to take off.
3: Yeah, and that's that's a very, very interesting point, and that's always been at the heart of my writing, is I love writing in a way that doesn't actually... Hinder artistic creativity. So what, what that means is I love writing kind of open-ended mm. compositions, compositions that don't necessarily um, say that the bass player must, mm. he or she must play this at this particular yeah. moment, or the drummer he or she must play this particular figure and this, this one exactly like this. And if it's not like this, then, then, you know, it's not, it's not right. I'm really very against that. And this is not to say, this is not to kind of undermine some, some of that music where it yeah. is like, that. I think that's great music and it, it should be respected. But for me personally, I've always been inclined to write stuff where it allows for individuality to, to shine through. And I think it especially comes through on tunes like to, to be seen a very open-ended kind of piece. There's not much, um, there's no much. There's not much um, material mm. on the page, but what why I wanted is to hear what Joel has to say, or hear what Jacob has to say. That's you know, I'm always trying to leave room for their creativity to come through.
0: Um, in, in terms of um, bringing Dennis Batiste with you on tour, um, people I think in Ireland may not be aware of just uh, he's a huge figure in in the London on the London jazz scene and in the uk jazz scene he's he's a he's a generation up from you how important was you the you, you Joel and uh, and Jacob the current generation how important was it for you to have that kind of i suppose mentor and and master with you uh, on the tour as he is on the album
3: um extremely extremely important and the whole reason why I I, I you know, I wanted Dennis to be on the record is actually because of he is, he, he was one of my first teachers um, mm. when I was kind of getting, getting my stuff together with jazz. Um, you know, I, I attended, I don't know if, if if anyone knows the organization, Tomorrow's Warriors. I attended you there. Say, and, say and, you know, the name of that
0: organization again because it's an important one, I think. Of
3: course. Tomorrow's, of course, Tomorrow's Warriors. Tomorrow's Warriors. Tomorrow's Warriors, um, yeah. And, that's it. Yeah. And Dennis actually came out of that same organization. So there's this whole kind of lineage thing, where, you know, older cats come out of the same kind of training and the same resources and have the same access to opportunities as some of the younger people like, mm. like myself. So to kind of keep that lineage going and, and you know, that's kind of why I specifically wanted Dennis, as opposed to maybe someone a bit younger. Yeah. I really wanted that. And also because, you know, this is a, this is someone who's been playing for far longer than I've been playing and has a whole load of experience. You know, Dennis has played with McCoy Tyner. He's played with Becky Masuleku, um Countless, countless people you know um, so important to have them there and
0: and Tomorrow's Warriors I suppose important to point out that one of the great guiding lights of the Tomorrow's Warriors uh, project is diversity in playing and access and giving chances to those who maybe are are, are often closed out from, from the world of jazz music I'll let you have a choice for us to finish up if that's okay with you Sultan I have both Faithful One and Safe Passage here in front of me but I can't play both of them which one would you like us to finish with and you can introduce it uh, by way of saying why you would choose it above the other faithful one or safe passage. Which do you want?
3: Oh, Stephen, you've, you've, you've really left me
0: a. Yeah, difficult a choice. Tough. I'm not making it. You have to make it, yeah. and you have to make it now. <laughs>
3: um. Okay. If I had to do it, oh, this is this is a very tough. This is a very tough question. Um. This is possibly the toughest interview question I've ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'd have to say it would have to be the title try, Faithful
0: One Faithful One okay I thought you might go for it and it, it is that I mean there is it, it has that sense of something across the record in fact a, a sense of faith if I'm not putting too much of it there's a track on there called Prayer as well is that aspect of life important to you is, 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 does faith inform your music in some way
3: Absolutely. And this is kind of, so really the record um, is definitely, you know, it's very, very uh, rooted in in Christian faith. And in two ways, the first way is for a long time, I've always thought the intersection between gospel music, blues and jazz has never really been developed. And Mm. kind of really, someone has really kind of taken that and really thought about it. So this is, the record is kind of my humble attempt to do that. But also, on the other hand, it, it, it kind of underpins different and it draws light to different experiences of the Christian faith. For example, prayer um, simulates a prayer meeting of people kind of being gathered in one room, speaking and praying about the same thing. But yeah. like on the record, it's, it's a very, very simple kind of feeling. Great.
0: Great. Which, well, listen, um, nice, nice to have spoken with you this evening, Sultan. And let's let let's people have a, a taste of Faithful One. Sultan Stevenson, Trio, touring Ireland from October the 24th to 29th. Musicnetwork.ie for full details there. You're listening to Thursday Night's Arena. A week back, we spoke to Wexford Festival Operas Rosetta Cookie about this year's programme of the main stage operas with the theme of women in war. Another project of Rosetta's is the Wexford Factory, which offers a platform to young Irish-based singers and pianists and repetiteurs who are at the beginning of their careers with the aim of helping them gain access to the international stage. I'm delighted to be joined in studio this evening by soprano Hannah O'Brien, the winner of the 2023 Danone Young Outstanding Female Artist at Wexford. Congratulations, Hannah.
4: Thank you very much and thanks for having me.
0: Delighted, delighted that you're here. Uh, when you heard that you were the winner of this year's um, prize, what was what was your initial reaction? Because it means a lot, I think.
4: It really does. It's it's um, first and foremost a, a bursary uh, which can help further our career because at this stage of the career, you're losing more money than you're making. Um, just with buying dresses, flying for auditions multiple times a week sometimes, mm. um, it becomes a lot. And sometimes it takes people out of the game because they can't afford to do it anymore. But this bursary is going to help me so much. I can already afford practice rooms now for the next year.
0: Are Um, you still still at a studying stage, Hannah? Or are you kind of beyond that now?
4: I just did a year um, post grad in Manchester uh, Royal Northern College of Music, and now I'm done. Uh, yeah. So now it, you like have
0: it. to get out there. You have to let people hear your voice. You have to get people to see yes. it. I'm guessing being part of Wexford this year in a couple of different uh, situations, not least of which is the factory, but also as part of the, one of the main stage operas. Tell me about the main stage opera that you're part of, yeah, uh, so first uh, of all.
4: Uh, it's a fr- French opera, L'Aubre Rouge by Erlanger. Yeah,
0: it's a little known opera. So it's,
4: it's, it's never been heard by anybody mm. who's alive today. I'm nearly sure. <laughs> Uh, so
0: you didn't study it at college, clearly. No, you, you can't
4: could. even hear a recording of yeah. it. So so you're, you know, with your tiny little piano skills that I have, I've been trying to like play it and mm. and understand the melodies and and harmonies of it. Um so it's a really exciting project. And um
0: And you're playing the role of Tatiana, Tatiana there. What what yes. is her function within the
4: story? Uh, she says j'ai peur a lot, which means I'm scared. <laughs> uh and uh She is the youngest of this group of vigilantes um, and they are fighting for Russia Mm. um, and she isn't really one of the main gang. She she is always afraid. She's counting the dynamite. She's crying a lot. But she, I suppose, shows... The kind of people who were, were in these yeah. groups you know yeah. in, in these
0: yeah. in these mercenary groups or in these um, vigilante groups as yes. you say uh, and and obviously the theme of women and war is vital across all yes. three operas you've given us a sense of what's involved in that one you're also part of the the factory that this is such an exciting set of events really for young singers isn't it
4: yes it's amazing and it's amazing to have something like this in ireland it's it's a young artist program uh, that springs spans over two years and um, so we did uh, two weeks of intensive training last year we get coaches
0: what sort of people have been coming in to do the coaching and how exciting has it been to see somebody you know well on in their career and well established coming in and giving you the hints
4: it's amazing on it like um, we get uh, piano coaches and uh, singers hmm. uh, all who have had amazing careers uh, who we work with most is Ernesto Palacio um. And he is a very, very famous Rossini singer. And we work with him every day, actually. And mm. then we work with, with other other singers and pianists. But it's amazing because you're getting it straight from the horse's mouth. But my favorite, I, I've loved everybody, but I'm the biggest fan of Emanuele Yahoo. And uh, I had a coaching with her last year, and I I couldn't speak for for a few seconds. Actually, I was really <laughs> embarrassed.
0: What, what what voice is she? What uh, part she says? Uh, she's a, she's as a well. lyric soprano. Well. So would she have spoken to you about singing uh, Rosalka's song of the moon? From- I actually
4: sang Rosalka for her, and she hadn't sang that role, but um, she really helped me in the expansion of the phrases um, and really holding them. Right to the end. Yeah,
0: because it's from the Dvorak Opera and it demands a lot of holding long notes. Yes, um, yes. And even More was uh, accompanying you on piano in this performance that we're about to hear. Give us a sense of, I was interested watching you in rehearsal, just how expressive your hands and your body were and what you're singing here. Give us a sense of Rosalka's situation because it really is tragic, isn't it?
4: It's basically the story of The Little Mermaid without the happy ending. Um, the, the tenor dies in the end and Rosalka is sent back to the water not to be talked to she's by her yeah. yeah she's not to be talked to by her sisters and she'll be alone forever now because she had made a deal with uh Yezibaba who is a witch um basically ursula in the disney movie um <laughs> she wanted to be able to leave the water to see her love who she's singing mm. this aria about and then she finds that she can't really live on land. She's feeling sad and she yeah. misses her sisters, so she breaks her deal with Yezibaba and in order yeah, for that no. to happen the tenor dies in yeah. the end. Which mm-hmm. is which is very unusual. It's usually the soprano who's dying.
0: Yeah, but Rosalka's situation post is yes. not is not so hot either, yes. and all of that emotion will go into this. Yes. will go into this performance. Let's listen to it. Then the Rosalka song to the moon from the Dvorak opera Rosalka, and here we have Hannah O'Brien soprano, accompanied on piano by Efa Morin. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. Song to the Moon, the Dvorak area from Rosalka, sung by Hannah O'Brien, the 2023 Danone Young, outstanding female artist. She was accompanied by Aoife Moran on piano and you can find out more about her and everything happening at the Wexford
2: Festival Opera on wexfordopera.com. Our thanks to sound engineer Tom Norton for that.